0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman-Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Craft Sanity. This week I'm going to bring you a conversation with Amy Carroll of Portland, Oregon. She knows what it's like to land a great job, only to go to work and feel like something is seriously wrong. After graduating from the University of Oregon with a degree in interior architecture, she landed an impressive job as a commercial interior designer. But at her core, she just could not conform to the norms of the corporate world. It took a few years, but Amy eventually reclaimed an artistic life for herself. She started making art again jewelry, monoprints, and quilts. And she let go of the job that didn't suit her. Today, she's a thirty four year old artist, wife, and mother of two daughters. She's very busy. She writes the Angry Chicken Craft weblog, where she documents her creative life. She showcases her art, particularly her art quilts, prints, paper goods, and paintings on her site called King Pod. She also sells her work through that website. As if that's not enough, um, she also runs this fantastic website. Well, I actually enjoy all of her websites, but I really remember just feeling so inspired when I saw this one in particular, um, her Taiwan On website. And this one surprised me that I got as into this website as I, because I never would have imagined you know, that I would get this excited about an apron website. And at Taiwan On, she cooks up a monthly theme and invites participants to make aprons to showcase on the site. Amy also runs Mail Order, a subscription-based craft activity club that has involved everything from ID cards, merit badges, fake money, and secret passwords to decoder rings and various other fun things. So, as you can see, Amy is into a wide variety of creative endeavors. And before we get into the interview, I just want to remind you to check out CraftSanity.com for links to all of Amy's websites. You'll also find a super cute embroidery project from Amy to try at home, so check that out. Okay, so now it's time to settle in with the project and prepare to be inspired by the multi-talented Amy Carroll. Let's get a little bit of background on your just history as a crafter and artist. I understand you went to art school. Can you talk a little bit about where you went and what you studied?
1: Well, I actually went to University of Oregon, and I majored in um, interior architecture, and that was a program that was in the architecture school, and it's bundled with architecture, landscape architecture, and interior architecture, and it's a five-year program, and I started that program after I had been at the university for a year um, as a fine art major, and I you know, I kind of went out of high school and just thought immediately I want to be a fine art major, and I've been taking art classes ever since I could remember. And um, and then got to the university, and the art program was, it was okay. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, really ex- super exciting to me, and I had done a summer program in high school at Parsons in L.A., and that was pretty awesome, and so it was hard to kind of go from that to... Um, the program at U of O because I just I wasn't just connecting with it and in the meantime I started seeing what the furniture um, designers were doing and I found out that to take the furniture design class you actually had to be an interior architecture major which I actually had um, never even thought about and I thought well that sounds pretty cool so I switched and it was, it was it's actually a really hard program to get into and um, and I got in and that's what I did. And then I, I just continued in fine art. And um, I was there for a long time. I was there for six years. And I didn't really have minors there, but you can um, specialize in different subjects. So I specialized in um, fine art, costume construction, and architecture. Um, so that was kind of right underneath my you know um, area of study, which was then interior architecture. So I kind of just hung out and took a lot of classes for a long time. What did you do right after you graduated? Okay, so right after I graduated, I I got, like, a new outfit and got my portfolio (laughs) together and got a job. And I I remember, it was 96, and I remember um, a lot of my friends were like, "Woohoo! art degree, English degree, we're screwed, you know? And I had this degree um, that... Pretty much guaranteed me to get a job, and you know because it was such a rigorous program and it was so nationally known. There's, I think, three schools in the country that have this type of um, five-year interior architecture program because it's not interior design. Um, It's 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 just this very specific degree, and it's really geared towards commercial design. And so I, um, yeah, I got a little outfit and moved to seattle with my that now husband then boyfriend and um got an apartment and started working at an architecture firm and um immediately realized that it was not something i wanted to do
0: now isn't that depressing like when you you go through school and you're like this okay this is it i got the job and and then i mean how did you cope with that and how long did it take you to realize that that was not what you were meant to do
1: um it was interesting. I had some pretty bad experiences. And I think um, part of it was being, you know, in my early 20s working professionally and coming from a really vibrant, fun, crazy town, Eugene, Oregon, that I swear is just run by 18 year olds. <laughs> and that was so much fun. And we had been living a life that was, you know, Pete was um, in a great band at the time, and it was still going really strong. And so we were leaving that and we were really involved with the music scene down there and the art scene down there. Moved to Seattle, which, you know, in the 90s, obviously, and then the 90s was a pretty intense music scene, too, but we were um, all of a sudden having to... I was working in an office. I mean, my hair was purple. I had to... I I mean, I was... Your hair was purple. (laughs) I I had dyed it myself. I mean, it wasn't a good purple. It was, like, bad, bad just home job this bad did you and, get get the job with purple hair but you know i had it up and it was kind of hidden and then i and then i went in and it was down and it was it was um it was a pretty conservative office it was really conservative actually it was extremely conservative like all the guys there had a mustache you know? and that was like what <laughs> that's what the look that they were going for you know and, and they and, weren't purple <laughs> no and you know it um I realized it was part of it was just the shock of corporate culture and realizing that I wanted to be who I was, which was someone who was kind of, you know, wore a lot of vintage clothes and looked funky and expressed myself in that way. And I realized uh, I didn't want to be a topic of conversation. I didn't want to be the conversation piece, like the, oh, look, there's the already new girl. I didn't want to have that conversation. And so I started to like really strip down who I was. Outwardly, and that that got pretty depressing pretty quick.
0: How did you do that? Like, what did you do? Did you dye your hair back to the normal color? I or did.
1: What? You did. Yeah. Like, I how did. quickly?
0: Like, right away? Like,
1: um, yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. I was say, within the next few weeks, it was like that was that was gone. And um, you know, I was scared, and I was young, and there were uh, lots of men there, and there. 40s and 50s, which I realized for the most part was a really bad fit for me. I I could really knock heads with a lot of men in the office. And there was a very sort of, you know, (laughs) I just, I really didn't fit in. So I, I wasn't at my first firm for very long. I was there for about six months. And I thought, well, you know, it was kind of on the outskirts of Seattle. It wasn't technically in Seattle. And I thought, well, I just, I. I took the first job i could get to get my feet wet to get in the situation where i could say i had experience because one thing is i did stay in eugene every summer and i worked because we lived there full time and i i needed i worked all through school and um you know did the whole student loans and worked all through school so i was not able to do unpaid internships you know I, i couldn't go to portland for the summer and work at an architecture firm for free and put that on my resume. And that's what everyone else did. And so, so what sort was... of
0: jobs were you doing in the summers?
1: Um, oh, you know, that was another thing that was really interesting, is I was doing jobs that I realized in hindsight were my favorite jobs I'd ever had. Like, I'd been out of school for, you know, seven or eight years, and I realized the jobs I had in Eugene were much more in sync with, like, who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be doing. Um, so I had usually always had two jobs, but sometimes three, and they were – I worked in the art store. Um, I also was um, a picker for a little bit, where I would go around and, you know, because there was so much vintage stuff there, and I would buy and then um, resell to buyers at vintage shops. And then I did a lot of repair of vintage clothing. And um, and then I also made, <clears throat> I did a lot of bookbinding at that time. And so I was doing a lot of albums and selling to a lot of the higher end stationery shops. And um, And then I worked in a really great clothing shop, which was wonderful because the discount was great, and so I was able to kind of really have fun working in this great shop that had great clothes, and, um, and then I did some work study too, and I worked in the costume shop um, for a year, and so it, I did a lot of different stuff and um, loved all of it and realized also that I really thrived with having multiple jobs and not having regular hours. And the nine to five. It, you know, this all came later. You know, I realized this all later. But I would sit around and think, "Why was this so much happier?" And it was just, um, I was. And and but anyway. So getting back to Seattle, I worked in this first firm for six months, and then I went to a different firm in in Seattle. And this was a great location. It was down by the Pike Street Market. I would go to the market every day. It was, you know. Um, you know, it smelled like fish. I mean, it yeah. was like, it was so vibrant and so alive. And I got there and um, realized quickly in about two weeks that I was in a place that, again, was not a good fit. And this was a young, happenin' um, firm that, that had a lot, a lot going for it on paper. You know, it's like it was a type of place where I would say, oh, I worked here. And people would say, oh, my God, that's Great! That's so cool that you're working at that firm because that's a really cool firm. And again, I I realized really quickly that I it was it was that that was that feeling in your stomach, you know? It was the oh no, this isn't this isn't right.
0: Oh it, yeah, we all know.
1: It, yeah, and mm-hmm. that was, that happened about two weeks into it. And so I was there for another six months, and then I went to another firm, <laughs> <laughs> and I was at my third firm for want to say two years and then i just kind of freaked out actually and quit completely and um at that time i had started taking art classes again and realizing that part of what was going on is i wasn't doing artwork and so i started painting again and started taking jewelry and um then got married and got an art studio that was probably one of the biggest Biggest things up there. They have this um, these places called Active Space, which they have down in Portland now too. But they, I was able to get a studio for a hundred dollars a month, and I could just sell a couple pieces of artwork, and that would finance it. And right. So that was pretty awesome. And uh, once I did that, and I started taking monoprint. I went from I painted for about a year um, with with a really really great teacher up there, who actually had had studied at University of Oregon and taught there. And um, so we knew a lot of the same teachers and stuff. And he was really supportive of my work and was kind of like, what are you doing? Why aren't you showing? And I was like, oh, OK, that's, uh, sure. And so I started showing in galleries and um, started working on paper, started doing monoprint. And then it just slowly started to kind of get momentum. And then I started having more shows and selling more and um, being able to show in more galleries. and. Um, and then I finally realized I needed to just have a break. I needed—I really needed to get out of what I was doing because it was so much overtime and so much travel. So then I started um, being a rep for a showroom um, because when you're doing interior design, there's a whole line of furniture and fabric that's only available to the trade. And uh, it's a whole world that people don't really know about unless you're in it. And it's actually really fascinating But and um, would be a great reality TV show because the amount of prima donna behavior in in these environments is unlike anything you would believe i mean it really (laughs) is like there's a book there's a book that could be turned into a movie of of this environment it's it's truly unbelievable and um so i worked in a showroom, and so you know what would happen is imperial designers would come in and, and pick out things for their clients, and, and you couldn't just walk in if you were a normal person. I mean, so like, mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't kick you out, but, like, you know, you, you they, it wasn't for normal people. It was just, it was crazy. And they, um, and so I, I did that. I was actually a rep for fabric and furniture, and it allowed me to completely decompress. So I went from, like, you know, really, really intense, you know, hotel design, restaurant design, and traveling a lot to, you know, faxing things and. Thing. I mean, it was, it was you know, really what I needed. And it took me about a year to, like, come out of my, you know, sort of damaged state. Um, and that whole time I was doing artwork, and then we moved to Portland. So that was, that's kind of, it's sort of a sad tale, and I don't mean it to be. Well, I no, mean, I don't
0: think it's sad at all because I think, I mean, obviously it's sad when you're going through it. I mean, it's really sad. But I think what, what this is great that you're sharing this because a lot of people can relate And I think a lot of times there's a lot of pressure when you go to college and you spend all that money and all that time earning a degree that a lot of us come out of college feeling like, okay, we better do some responsible stuff with that degree that we earned. And, you know, at Thanksgiving or Christmas when you go home and you're sitting with the relatives and people say, so, what are you working on? Um, If you say, well, you know, I just um, decided that I'm going to dye my hair orange and be my true self. um, Most people are not – I mean, you know, you might not get grandma and grandpa saying – well that's great you know um, so I mean a lot not saying that families aren't supportive but it's just something that um, the expectation is that you're going to do the responsible thing get the job get collect the paycheck and that should be enough but the thing is I think those of us of the artistic persuasion um, that's not enough the money is not enough and you know so you discovered that and it sounds like it took how many years total would you say about four or five to get um, realigned
1: I, actually it, was, it felt like an eternity, but when I look back on it now, it was about three years. Three years. It was about three or four years. And it was even less time. I, I realized something was really happening to me that was bad when I wasn't doing any artwork. My machine, my sewing machine was put in storage. And um, I just didn't even know who I was. I mean, I literally did not know who I was. It was like I, we were still going to music shows a lot, and Pete Band was still playing out a lot. And so I was able to vicariously say, okay, I there's still this theme that I remember that meant a lot to me. But because of my nine-to-five persona kind of situation, I was so unable to reconcile that um, that it wasn't until I started painting again that I was, like, you know, able to, to remember who I was. And um, But it was, it was you know, probably three, three years. And the one thing I have to say, though, that's so interesting is my, my mom, who's a creative person, um, although a journalist, you know, it's interesting, you know, she studied journalism and, and has been an editor for long, 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 long time at the Oregonian. And, um, she's a very creative person and she actually quilts, oh, you know, 30 hours a week when she gets home from work. Wow. But she, um, she's a journalist, you know. And so, so anyway, but my point is that, you know, you're talking about how we feel like we need to do the, the, the responsible thing. But one thing my mom told me all through high school was, um, if you you study whatever you want to in college and it doesn't matter one bit if you ever use it in your professional life. Like she, if I wanted to major in, you know, felt, abstract, I don't know, you know, hat making, that would have been, like, to her the best that I could have done. You know, she was so about me experiencing life and experiencing what I wanted to learn. And so it's really interesting because all the pressure of, career um what making money being successful not in a materialistic way more in a what well, you know wanting to someday have a family and a house and these things i knew i wanted and, and trying to figure out how to get from a to b that was all internal that was all me that was all my bat all my baggage you know and um my mom would have loved it if i you know continued in fine art and said to be a fine art major but I had, and, and I had, I, I have to say, I was haunted because I had a couple painting teachers at University of Oregon who did uh, recommendations for me to get into the interior architecture program. And there was one of those moments where one of them just said, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This isn't you." And I was like, "You know, shut up. I know who I am." And was, you know, <laughs> right. he was like, "What? You need to stay in painting. You know, what you're gonna, you're gonna be an interior designer." And I was like, "Well, yeah." And it was almost like that. I was so indignant. I was so mad that he did that. that I, I was like, I'll show him. And and um, it kind of haunted me later. But I be- I truly believe that every single thing I learned in school and professionally when I was working only helped where I am now. I mean, um, it was a lot of really hard work, but I think it allowed me later to show at galleries and be confident as a fine artist. Um, in ways I never would have had if I'd studied fine art as a major because that in itself has a lot of baggage too and so I think part of it was hey it's okay if I put it out here and fail because I'm not really a fine art major you know it's like like I always had that (laughs) out you know it's kind of like it's I have always really really um, worried about my friends that were writers because it's like god that's so heavy I mean you're a writer that's so heavy you know and 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 if someone isn't a writer but writes a book, it's like, well, if the, you know if it never worked out, it's okay because they're not really a writer. Right, right. Because if you
0: define yourself by that, oh. yeah. Well, it sounds like you came through all of this, and you're in a great place now.
1: I am, I am, and I have to, I have to go back though and say that I, it sounds like it was awful, but I really, it, I didn't, I didn't make any bad decisions. It was just life, and I actually, I do think that a lot of people, creative or not do you go through sort of a shell shock when they, you know, start working out of school if they, if they land that 9-to-5 job right away and they don't really kind of bang around? Um, it's just growing up. I and mean, a lot of it is just like, oh, my God, this is, I'm actually talking to someone at a rotter cooler. This is so dumb, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I think part of it was just that, being in my early 20s and just kind of going, what is this? This is not this is like a bad impression of someone who's trying to be grown up, you know?
0: So when you guys moved back to the, you went right back to Portland area, is it? That...
1: We did. We traveled in Europe for a while and I just kind of got weird and, you know, we just, you know, decided Pete at that point had, you know, Pete was a music major. So that was another thing is we both were kind of like figuring out how to do a creative life and make a living. And he was a um, jazz guitarist. He was in the jazz department at university of Oregon and a guitarist. And, um, so he had this kind of side, he had this band that was awesome that was not at all jazz. And then he was also trying to figure out how to be a jazz player, which is hard. And uh, and in the meantime, because he's a genius, he um, taught himself how to um, be a software developer. And Seattle was a great place to break in he that He taught
0: himself way. how to be a software developer? Yeah, you know, I, wow. I do
1: think that, you know, obviously he was... Um, you know, had leaning that way, and I yeah. think there's a lot of connection between computer and music, but he, he, um, yeah, he bought, he bought a bunch of books, and, you know, in about a year, he was writing Java, and then he landed his first job, and, um, was coding, and it was pretty hardcore, and he, he, he actually got his first job editing sheet music online, so it was actually really neat, because wow. he was able to use his, his music degree, and then break into computers that way, and, um, and he loves doing software development. I mean, it's like he loves it. It's weird. It's like it's, it's just it's just in him. And um, but because we were in Seattle and it was the nineties, um, every company he worked at was just tanking. You know, it was like with six months here, six months there. And so when the last job tanked um, because there were all these upstarts and you know all the funding got pulled at the last minute, and we just we went to Europe and um, came back and then moved to Portland. How and,
0: long were you in Europe?
1: Uh, just actually just a month, and it was wonderful. And while we were there, we found out his company um, was folding again. And we thought, you know, we're just, um, we're going to come back and pack up and, and leave. It's time to leave. And so we left and we moved to Portland. And then I started getting involved in um, digital video, which, you know, was so great. And um, was running around just being a dork with my camera and making movies. and you know, editing for hours, and it was just fun and funny, and then...
0: Was um, this for your, for yourself, or was yeah. this a job? No, <laughs> so it was just for me. So you're doing, like, little documentaries oh, around yeah. Portland? Oh, yeah. Oh, it was so, yeah. Was well, that of... sounds like an absolute
1: blast. Um, oh, my God, it was wonderful. Were people
0: wondering, though, what has gone on with Amy? Is she okay? Um, you, you know, know no? actually,
1: that was pretty par for the course, because I had a friend who I had known since grade school, and I was like, oh, dude, you know, I can't believe I dropped all this money on the camera, And what am I doing? And I'm taking these classes, but you know, I it was, I mean, it was like a bad Apple commercial. I saw iMovie, and I was like, that's so for me. (laughs) I'm so all over that. I'm gonna, because I, you know, that was one of my things when I was little. Is I really wanted to be a film director. You know, I really wanted to get involved in film, and and, but then painting, you know. I I just thought I really there were too many choices, too many things I was interested in, and I had to make a decision at some point. I just figured, you know, I'll I'll go down this road, and I didn't want to move to California and and study film in college. And um, but but my friend from middle school reminded me when I told him I said, "Oh, I can't believe I got this camera, but I'm having so much fun." And he said, "Amy, you know, you were you had a video camera glued to your arm from like sixth grade to eighth grade, which was true." And I have stacks of these. Ridiculous film movies. And the camera was huge. I mean, it was like the size, it looked like a huge boombox, you know, that I was yeah. like carrying around on my shoulder. And they were so bad. And they are so funny. I can't even watch them now without just dying. I mean, they're just comedy routines. And like, I was really into Carol Burnett. And so, like, my whole thing was like comedy routines and little short skits. And um, oh, Bad, really bad stop motion animation, which I love. You know, it's. I mean, it was so bad, and it was so much fun. And I, I. I mean, I have like a lot of those years of my life documented on these on these videotapes, and so I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I. I guess I. I. I guess that has been an interest of mine for a while. So, I didn't feel so ridiculous. Um, and we have pretty ridiculously edited home movies of the kids. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs>
0: Well, at least there are some practical applications, you know, for your own family history. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you're running around making movies. Uh Uh-huh. About what exactly?
1: Oh, you know, I did it. I just, I was actually for exercises, I was just doing kind of short videos to music. Oh, okay. And having Pete as a musician um, helped. And then I, then, then. I got kind of into this whole thing where I was, like, down on making art to put on walls. I mean, I, I was, it was—it sounds silly saying it out loud, but I was really into wanting to do more kind of experience-oriented art and just get away from selling things and getting away from the whole, here's my thing that I made, and I'm going to sell it to you, and you can put it up on your wall. I really was just not interested in doing that kind of stuff and um, really wanting to get more into, I guess, performance art, but really more just experience kind of just have the experience, you know, doing some sort of experience. But, and at the same time, I was thinking more multimedia and had secured, you know, I talk a lot, and I'm pretty enthusiastic, so I had, like, snowed some guy into committing to give me a space um, for a show that I wanted to do because I had been compiling data from friends for about a year on um, what superhero they would be if they uh, had... I had a big questionnaire, and it was like... A, it was actually took quite a bit of work, but it was, a, it was a big questionnaire, and they had to fill out this form and their colors and whether or not they'd have a cape and <laughs> their powers, all this. And I kept it on this notebook, and I had like 50 of them. And my idea was that <clears throat> I was going to have a multimedia show with um, sort of found objects of all these superheroes. So it's kind of like... Um, you know, they might have existed at different times, you know, in history, but you'd find these things, because a lot of people, I mean, it was like, it was just a goldmine of information, because I didn't come up with any of it, so some people wore like a, <laughs> I remember one guy was like, I have roller skates, and I wear a big clock, like Slave of Slaves." Uh-huh. And I'm like, shut up, it was so rad, and so I thought, well, I'll find some skates and get a big clock, and like, my mom wore a weird hat, kind of like a brownie, like, I mean, these what just, like a brownie
0: like like the Girl Scouts like, like and was, brownies?
1: Like, yeah, you know, like I was Cub Scouts, like Girl Scouts, <laughs> like a brownie She loved the hat or something like that, you know. And like, but it was great because like Pete, I got Pete's parents to do it, and then my friends. So it was just ran the gamut of weird. It was just
0: great. So what were what were you gonna? What kind of superhero would you were you gonna be?
1: Well. <clears throat> You know, I I hesitate to talk about that, because it's actually, people have been kind of uncomfortable with it. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They really, because I gave it a lot of thought, and they were kind of like, oh, Amy, that's creepy. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Because for the most part, like Pete, well, anyway, let me just say that the video worked into this, because one of the first projects I did was videotaping Pete's segment, which was uh, freezing time. He had the ability to freeze time. And so he, you know, we drew a map of his lair, and there was a moat, and all of this, and then we'd film it, and then he would freeze time, which of course was hysterical because you just stopped the camera that was the frozen. Right, right, right. And um, so there was going to be music involved, and then and video, and then this found objects. So I was going to do a lot of knitting, like, you know, maybe a cape would be knitted, which was interesting because later I did see that some guy, some brilliant genius had knitted, um, like, a Spider-Man outfit, like, completely. So. I
0: think I saw that on the Internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And, uh, and, and, and another friend of mine who's um, <laughs> he's so funny, he really wanted to talk to people about being um, nonviolent. And so his power was kind of persuasive sort of therapy, And so I was going to do like a, like an audio file of him talking down a, you know, a real bad guy, you know, like, I mean, it was just, there was just so much potential. And my, um, so a lot of people, you know, froze time or my brother was like Sonic Man. He was just so loud that things would like explode, which was perfect for him. And, um, but my, um, my power actually is, this is so morbid, but I really, um, I was trying to figure out what uh, scared me the most. And I think. Personally, when I think about science fiction and things, um, uh, the mutation of cells really freaks me out. So like, obviously, cancer and things like that. Mm -hmm. But genetic sort of things, um, I'm fascinated but repelled by them. And so my power was the ability to um, heal. But it was also the power to um, be able to mutate someone's cellular kind of structure. So they could kind of, you know, rock from the inside out, which I know sounds awful. <laughs> but I was really trying to tap into, like, well, you know, what I thought was a pretty powerful thing.
0: Yeah. And
1: that's kind of what I came up with. And I and I would definitely wear a cape, which was actually a real dividing line between, between people. as You know, cape versus no cape. And then some people liked capelettes, you know, the short cape, which I thought was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think, so is that your power, your superpower, um... Stem from a daydream back in your days of working the nine to five job, where you were wishing certain people would rat from the inside out. <laughs> no, no, I was never.
1: Uh, no, but I. Yeah.
0: Well, that's okay. We don't need to go in details, there. But so, <laughs> I did know, you
1: worry that like people? No, 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 I worked with that are going to hear this and think I just everyone and I well
0: while my show is growing in popularity each week i'm not exactly to the you know barbara walter sta- stage yet where people everyone knows who i am interview with amy well so let's get back to um i'm leading you astray here let's yeah. get back to the gallery space you you scored some gallery space for this right. exhibit now did you what happened then did you well
1: you know um i i had high hopes for this project and i was going to work on it for a year and at the meantime and this is in portland and i I had already shown some quilts um, in a mixed media show, and that was an awesome experience because I had shown my small framed quilts and then some of my larger quilts um, because I had started to move from painting into you know, really just working on fabric, but I was doing all my own hand-dyeing of the fabric, and I was composing them on the wall, and so I was starting to develop a system that was um, pretty much the same as painting. And actually, if you look at the paintings um, and my quilts, they're, you know, you, sometimes you couldn't tell the difference. I mean, they're they're just very similar shapes and composition and things. And this guy asked me to be in a um, mixed media, or it was sort of an alternative media. And so, you know, there were plants hanging from the ceiling and dirt on the floor, and you know, it was it was kind of a lot of things were more installations. And and I had my quilts up, and um, I remember this guy walked in, and I I since learned that he was a, a a curator in town, because there's you know so much art happening here, and so there's a whole like group of people who are also curators. Mm-hmm. That's its own, that's its own sort of scene, and um, and uh, and he walked up to the wall and just goes, "These aren't art. What what is this?
0: Are you kidding me? And were you there when this happened? I was. I
1: was right behind him.
0: Oh no. So what do you do in a situation like that? I
1: was. Well, I have to say, he had the worst hair I had ever. <laughs> scene. So I mean and it was it was like it was comically bad. So and you were was, just like, that's not hair. No, and I, so I I had to look at the swords. I mean what would I have thought if he'd said, Oh my God, I have to buy all these. I love them so much. I mean I think I would have had some concerns that way as well. Because I mean this guy <laughs> was so and he was so loud. He was so you know, but he was really just like, oh my God, what is this? This is these are quilts on the wall. What is this? You know and What year was that? Um, it was three, it was three years ago.
0: Okay, so, yeah, it wasn't like this was the first art quilt he's ever seen, I mean.
1: No, in fact, later I found uh, some writing about it, I found um, a little tiny review of that show and my work, and he would, he kind of made some sort of, you know, she tried to pull in these, uh, these band, you know, contemporary quilts, and.
0: Um, oh wait! So that guy with the bad hair actually wrote something about it.
1: He did. Oh goodness! So he's yeah. a curator
0: and kind of. And so
1: then you know, and then I thought, well, gosh, maybe I'll make a quilt and say an uh, applique on it. This is not art, just to make it clear to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, it's such a it's such a whole other topic. But I just thought it was interesting because you know he really. Um, I mean, the plants hanging from the ceiling, I guess, that was... That was
0: art, but yeah. the quilt was not. And what no. did the quilt look like? What, what was on it?
1: They were actually quilts I have on the website. They were, there was two of the larger quilts, and then some of the small framed quilts. So the small framed quilts, you know, have really kind of animal characters, and they're more of a narrative, and they... Um,
0: okay, I've probably seen them if they're on your website. Yeah, yeah. and then the
1: big, the big quilts are really just abstract, and they don't, you know, they're not... I think they're whimsical, but they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're shapes. They're abstract shapes. They don't, you know, they're not like the small quilts, but... And But what was interesting about that show also is a woman came in who was one of the artist's moms, and she happened to be a quilter. And so she looked at all the pieces and was looking at, I don't know, you know, the Barbie dolls or whatever. There was some, you know, weird stuff there. And then she saw the wall of my quilts, and she was just like, oh, my God, who did these, you know, and came over and wanted to talk to me about the applique method I used. And it wasn't about, like, The abstract composition of them it was more like i'm a quilter too and so what is this a machine quilting so it was a really interesting experience because i had the one end of the you know the curator with the bad hair going what is this (laughs) and then i had the other end which was a person who was a hardcore um quilter but crafts person and not really
0: appreciating yeah right so, what, you, so what, did you, what did you do? Did you run into anybody during that show that actually came at it and thought, wow, this is great art, and wanted to talk to you about, you know, kind of what you were attempting, what, what message you're trying to communicate through your artwork, or did you have uh, no. that discussion with anybody? No. So how did you feel? I mean, were you kind of like, okay, well, take me, you're, okay, you're standing behind this guy saying, that's not art. Yeah. What did you do? Did you address him at all, or did you just kind no, of? No,
1: I, you know, honestly, I, I really, I was so amazed. Um. Because there weren't that many people there at the time. It was right, it was before the opening. It was a little before the opening. He'd come early. And so I was actually kind of shocked that he was so loud because, you know, really right before the opening, some people were still hanging. So it was, you know, really good odds that the The artist
0: was going to be there. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, jeez.
1: And I was with my brother, and I just started hitting him. I mean, I was like, dude, dude, dude. You know, because I was, so he could hear because I was trying to be quiet because I didn't want him to stop talking. I think there was this weird part of me that just wanted to be a fly on the wall because I never get to hear. Like, whenever I've been in shows, I always try an eavesdrop, you know? And I stay really far away from my work. So then when I see people stand in front of it for a long time, I can kind of, like, walk behind them. And I've done that for years. And it's really ridiculous, but I can't help it. And, um, <laughs> and this was the first time that I'd ever heard something so negative. I mean, just so, like, get it off the wall. It was pretty, but, you know, I, I don't really have that. It, it just, I, I thought it was funny, I guess, and I, um, you know, I don't know. its I think, honestly, part of me, my whole life has always felt so much more comfortable being the underdog and, and be having a struggle. Like, I'm so much more comfortable in that way that I do think that part of me does stuff just to not fit in. I mean, not that it's not valid, not that quilts shouldn't be art, but I do think that. I either consciously or unconsciously am doing something where, uh, you know, it's not completely clear or easy to define. I guess.
0: Well, it sounds like that's it's working for you. I because mean, I, I look it. at I look at your work and I think it's fantastic. And um, well, if I didn't think it was fantastic, I wouldn't waste our time right now. You know, <laughs> I mean, let's just be real. I mean, I don't interview people I don't think I like them or I like their work. So, <laughs> and since this is not my normal. Um, nine-to-five journalism right. job. I get yeah. to be completely biased in favor of art and craft. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and I disclose that to my listeners here. But um, so so after that point, I mean, I know that you have, I read um, in your bio online that you actually have art in a collection in Japan, in a permanent collection. Yeah. How did that happen? That's fantastic.
1: You know, that was one of those things that happened through being um, at an architecture firm um, in Seattle. And, really? Yeah, because, and this was, so what I was starting to realize I needed to leave was um, I was getting enough work. I, I was doing monoprint, and monoprint is wonderful, and I would love to get a press and do that again. And can, you, can
0: you explain for people who aren't you know, up on monoprint, what, what is, exactly is it?
1: Well, monoprint itself can be a lot of – you can do it uh, different ways, but really what it's just saying is you're making a print on paper, but there's only one. Okay. So that's, that's the mono part of it. And so what you do is you either work on zinc plates, which is what I do, or plexi, and you um, paint or do a variety of different things to the plate. You run it through a press, and you only get one print. Now, you can do what you call a ghost print, where there's ink still left on the plate, and so then you can go back through and sort of try and recreate the print again. But it technically is different, and um, you really can't ever recreate the same thing over and over again, because it's not an etching. It's not a woodcut. It's not a, you know, it's not anything like that. And, And what I like about it is it's really similar to painting. You're just painting on a metal plate in reverse, and um, turning it over and running it through a press, and working on papers is just wonderful, and you get that embossed line, and you can collage on that, and you can sew into it, and you can you know add paper, you can add all kinds of things. The only thing about it that started to make me cuckoo was that you can have a lot of you can you can make a lot of art, and you know so after doing monoprint for two years, I had stacks and stacks. Art and I know that sounds strange, but it's like sometimes you just need to work on something for months, you know. And so to be able to to do pieces that quickly, you know, um, even though they would the bigger pieces would take me a long time, I could still do you know five pieces in a week. That that just seemed like a lot to me. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I ended up with quite a bit. And monoprint was getting really popular in Seattle. There was some really good teachers up there. And also, what was happening, and I think this is happening even more so now, is there was a need, both commercially and uh, among collectors, to be able to buy things that were more affordable. You know, there's been a real shift in Portland and Seattle, and I think all over the country, about wanting to buy artwork that we could all afford. You know, so instead of, you know, seven thousand uh, dollars, you know, a really nice price like one fifty. Right. And of course, working on paper reduces the price and it allows people to frame it and it's a very nice tidy clean package you know it's, it's very it's very marketable is what it is and um so a lot of interior designers like for instance i was on both ends you know if i were doing interior design and i needed artwork for a hotel i would look on paper way before i would look on canvas for a couple reasons but you know if it's on paper you frame it so there's it's a Better investment for the for the company because it doesn't get damaged, mm-hmm. um, and also you can get more for your money. And so, um, and all a lot of designers think that way. And so, a lot of the boutique hotels that we were working on needed original artwork, but needed it um, need a lot of it. And so, what was but but you know, I never in a million years thought about speccing my own artwork for a project. But it was starting to get very. I mean, it was starting to like be right there. I mean, you know, I was spending a lot of time looking at other artists' work on projects that I was working on. And Mm -hmm. a couple people were like, oh, you know, you should. And I thought, what? No, that's weird. It's incestuous and strange and probably not professional. Um, Plus, how much do I want to market myself as an artist when I'm actually working with these owners as a designer? It just seems strange. But the company was big enough that some of the other designers were really actually uh, very, very supportive of me and my artwork. And so they were working on a project in Japan. And so they were coworkers. And they came to me and said, We want to use your prints in this new project we're working on in Japan.
0: Wow, that's really cool.
1: And so I think I had, yeah, a lot of pieces go over there.
0: Well, and that probably helped you um, make the transition from the nine to five job. It
1: did. Well, you know what it did also? I mean, just like really and truly, as, you know, however this sounds, it was a huge financial um, coup. I mean, it, it allowed me to pay for my studio for two years. Like, I could say, all right, I'm not going to, I don't have to sell anything for two or three years, and I still could cover my studio costs. That's awesome. So that was huge, because when I did end up leaving the design world, I took an enormous pay cut, and that was a reality of the situation. I had to figure out how I was going to, you know, go forward with that pay cut. So so That that really helped.
0: Do you have any kind of day job now, or are you an artist full-time?
1: Well, you know, I'm raising my two girls.
0: Well, that's a full time job, I and know. And <laughs> that
1: feels like full time plus. Yeah,
0: that's like a yeah, it is. It's like yeah y- you need ten more hours a day.
1: Yeah, and so, um yeah, and and Julia's almost two and Sadie's almost four. So that's that keeps me really busy. And then um and I don't and they're not in any sort of preschool or anything. I mean it's and I don't have anyone helping out. So I mean it really is there could be some long days and, Pete was working at home for a bit, but now he's downtown, and so it's you know it's ten hours. And sometimes I'm like, "Honey, what, <laughs> we're coming to get you." Yeah. <laughs> but um, and but then in terms of actually doing, I do artwork full time. Um, it's been interesting, you know. Um, I sell pieces occasionally. Um, still, I don't work really fast with my fiber pieces, and I really prefer not to. I really like to take a long time, and um, then I have other things that I can sell, like my note cards that are. Um, of my of my quilts, and then actually, you know, what has been the real shock to me, and what reminds me so much of my superhero project, and that it's it's just me completely being um, self indulgent with my own like sense of humor, is my mail order project, which um, is the mail order club that I I you could buy a subscription to. And yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. When that is like ridiculous, and it's so fun, and that truly has been like the surprise success of of the year, and it's. Um, I can't. I mean, I can barely keep up with it, and I'm so so pleased that people enjoy it because um, I never in a million years thought I could like even break even on that. And well,
0: explain explain what it is. I, mean, I read about it, and it sounds really awesome. I um, to try what it song.
1: is Is it's a subscription club, and you get um a, you, you subscribe, and then you get a packet in the mail. And it comes in a red envelope, and it's either it, it's a craft club, and so it's either um, a sewing project. Or a paper project, um, and then there's recipe cards included. And the whole idea is that it's. Um, let me. I'm trying to, I have a little tagline here. I'm just pulling on an envelope. It is mail order. Um, your crafting paper project and sewing club. I think is like the, the tag and.
0: And is it the same price every month?
1: It's the same price every month, and I. I, I, I said, it's
0: probably not every month, though, is it? Or is no, it? No, it's month?
1: not. It's actually it was every two months, and I'm actually switching it. Um, pretty soon here in the fall to be four times a year. Because I was doing it, with, it was six times a year this year. And it was it's just about kind of doing me under. Because it's so much work. And I love it, but it's like the minute I get one out the door, I have to start designing the next one. So <clears throat> I need to have a, a little bit of a breather in between. And
0: so how much is the subscription?
1: It's, um, so the individual issues are $12. So the subscription was, I think, 34 You got a little price break there.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> For the year. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and it and there's, you know, there was a secret decoder ring for subscribers um, because you develop individual issues, I and mean, then there's secret words, and then you get, if you get a secret word and you figure it out, you can go to my website and type it in, and um, you get a special little prize that's a PDF. And then there's also funny money and coins that come that sometimes are PDFs, but sometimes they're in the packet, and you cut them out, and actually you can now mail those in, and you get... Um, there's a list of things I just put out in the last one that you can choose, and it's like um, fake food or uh, stickers or um, a really short play or bad poetry. And you can get you know I mail these things back to you. You have to send a self-addressed envelope with the fake money, but you have to send the the real fake money. And um, <clears throat> the real fake money. <laughs> the real fake money. You can't send copies of it, and because you know. I know how much is out there. Okay,
0: so yeah, you can't you don't want any right. scam artists. That's right. But do you really yeah, have scam artists? Like do you really have to deal with scam artists in the no. craft world? I didn't
1: think No, that's... but how funny would that be?
0: Yeah, if someone was scamming Oh a my craft god, that would be so club, funny.
1: I would love that. I you know,
0: I, I you don't want to encourage, you know.
1: No, no, bit, no, yeah.
0: no. You in case somebody in jail is. You scam
1: me. But at right. the same time, getting the money back is so hysterical. It's like, I just, I've been getting some, you know, every day, and it's like, oh, my God, people are cutting this out. It's filling out this form. And sitting, and it's all really inspired by, like, Sears Roebuck catalogs, old catalogs, you know, all the old comic books that you would look at all that stuff when you're little, and you're like, oh, my God, I want those x-ray glasses. They probably don't work, but. But you want buy them anyway. Things. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, And so you send it back in. And a bunch of people have said, God, you should make this for kids. And I'm like, well, why? I mean, I know that's a good idea, but I like it for adults. I mean, it's like... Well, I, yeah,
0: it's fun. And I think, I think there's something in our society where it's like you get to be a certain age and you're not supposed to play anymore. And, and that just stinks, you
1: yeah. know? So good for you. Yeah, well, it's, it's really fun. And it's really a place to dump all of the other things in my brain that just don't really have a home. On, on the blog or on the KingPod website, it's like I don't really know how to fit in fake money or fit in, you know, that kind of thing. So this sort of just kind of came out from that.
0: Well, it sounds really cool, and so your um, people can still sign up. They just go to your website and sign up.
1: No, I. Um, no, it's not that simple because it's, it's really hard to keep track of subscriptions and and because it. I mean, it's, I think there's there's over three hundred. There's three. 350 go out at this point, and then I stop it because it makes me too crazy. So there's a lot floating around for each one, and um, so what what I'm doing for the next one and what I've done previously is I basically have a have a day where I say, okay, subscriptions are open, come come buy them. And when it gets to a certain number, I pull it because it freaks me out to think that I have to stuff that many envelopes, and, and also it's so much money to print print these things up front, and so. Um, so, what has happened is you can go to my website and get on my email list. And um, when you are on my email list, um, you get notified. And I I'll talk about it on the blog. So, I'll say, you know, in a week, I'm going to have this one for sale. If you're a subscriber, you're, you're already getting it. But, you know, if not, blah, blah, blah. And then in the fall, it's going to be subscription only. And I'll probably do like an, an open subscription for like four days and then just stop it, which is going to be kind of lame because it means you won't be able to get them for the, for the year. But I think what I'll do at that point is maybe like, I'll have the subscription only open for a year, and then um, if people find out about it later, they can add. But they can, you know, they can only add like for the next two and prepay for the next two. Or I'm not sure. You know, it's sort of a there's that end of it that's sort of the maintenance kind of. Well, it's one there. of those
0: things when you're wildly successful with an idea <laughs> that like you know kind of the complications of that you know
1: well um, I, yeah it sounds silly complaining it's a great problem to have certainly yeah. I mean it's like it's wonderful that I'm having that problem well, I think but it's great
0: I mean and it also kind of I guess is validation for you that there are a lot of other adults out there that like this kind of stuff
1: I'm shocked I'm I'm totally shocked because it was like the most self-adulgent ridiculous thing I've probably done like I mean it's just ridiculous there's you know, I, I, I use a different narrative when I write them. I mean, it's all very official, and everything's official and secret, and it's a club, and there's a secret handshake. I illustrate the secret handshake, and there's a special envelope that you put the card in, and there's this membership card, and it's just ridiculous, and I, and I, I just get so much, I, I love it. I'm obsessed, I mean, it's like I'm always thinking about like different.
0: Well, in researching, you know, doing the research for this, uh, the extensive research that I do for these interviews. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> I, I, um, I, get, I, I read all about this, and I'm like, man, I really, wow, that sounds. I mean, I kind of feel left out
1: since I have yeah, no idea well, what's going
0: on, you know. And I'm kind of like, man, I want to know what the secret handshake is.
1: Well, I have crap, to say, I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it, there is a slight. Um, you know, I, I have been accused in the past of being a clique former, and I remember in middle school, and and I really I oh, you
0: were one of those girls. I guess I meanwhile, was. I meanwhile, meanwhile,
1: I, I don't. I I mean, I guess I have to just admit that I've never. It was never. Uh, you know, like I wanted to exclude people. It was more that I just really always felt better with one friend or two friends. I've just never been a group person, and so the idea of just having kind of. I don't know, special secret club. It's really juvenile. And I do. people do write me occasionally, and they're like, you know, I want to be in on this. And it's sold out, and I feel left out. And I feel really bad, because that's not the intent. It's not, you know, supposed to be, like, exclusive. And yet, it totally is. I mean, it's ridiculous. So
0: do you actually, I mean, is this? do you make significant money off this? I mean, enough to sustain your other projects?
1: You know, actually, I do. Yeah. It's, it's, then why not <laughs> open it up? Geez, more uh, well, money for you. Well, you know,
0: it's, it's, <laughs> I thought about it. I don't have a business degree, but this seems logical well, to you me. Know, I think what it
1: is. Every time I think, oh, I'm going to sew more, and then I look at that stack of red envelopes, and
0: you're just like, I don't want to do that. Well, of course, and that's different than making a quilt or painting something or making prints. Well, I think what happens
1: is, you know, right now I can package and get everything out the door in about three nights, three or four nights. But you know, that is nights that I'm not that I that the girls have to go to bed and not get up, and I can't have interruptions. And I'm, you know, and it's and you know, sometimes we could just put on a video. Pete's gotten really good at stuffing too, and. um, but you know, it's it's a weird way to spend your time. I mean, when you want to paint or quilt or or you know blog or whatever, you you don't want to be stuffing envelopes. So so it's um I have to kind of figure out like what how it's going to keep me happy. Yeah. Well, it it sounds
0: head. like you're it sounds like you're already being really c- careful about that because some people let things explode out of control and then think, oh, how do I dial this back? And they have no right. idea. So you're right. well, you, you know what you're doing. Yeah. Don't listen <laughs> to me. Don't listen to me. I'm like, yeah, sell it to everyone who wants it. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, after the first one and the whole post office fiasco, and like trying to figure out my scale was off, and then you know, I, it, it, I had incorrect uh, mailing labels. Like they were They they actually chastised me. I mean, they made me feel really bad about myself with like, my with my mailing labels. They oh, were like, no. these are not uh, suitable. They're just, and you know, they showed them to other people. They were like, oh no, these are terrible mailing labels. And I'm like, God, I I feel awful at the post office, and I had to redo them. And, so I've learned the hard way.
0: Yeah, well, it, it sounds like it's a cool thing. So I'll have to, you know, all those people who want to get in on it, just uh, I'll, I'll, we'll give them some advice. Uh, to...
1: I think, you know, I, I really can't imagine it getting much bigger, honestly. Even, <laughs> it's a lot of people. I, I, I love the support. So but you kind
0: think... of have to wait for someone to have an unfortunate crafting accident <laughs> and well, then actually, you can take you know their what? spot. No,
1: I know that the last <laughs> project someone got bloody. Oh, I, no. I just, yes, no, it's a friend of mine, a blogger. I won't say her name. She knows who she is. She was putting together the stitch booklet, and all I know
0: is blood was involved. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So it's kind of a craft at your own risk.
1: Thing. I, you know, hey, you might I, want to add a disclaimer. so much, you know. Add a disclaimer next time,
0: because you don't want to be sued.
1: No, you know, I need, yeah, I need something like that.
0: Yeah. So okay. So that's um, mail order, and then um, you have your blog. Is called Angry Chicken. And right. when did, when did you start that, and why do you call it Angry Chicken?
1: I started that. I want to say February of last year. Okay. I, so it was a year in February, I think it was. Um, could have been April, right around then, and it's called Angry Chicken for no reason other than I had a small quilt that uh, has. A, it's called Baby Angry Chicken, and I was just um, King Pod. My website mm-hmm. is named is named after one of my mono prints that was called King Pod, mm-hmm. and so it really was just like I needed the name, and I liked that particular quilt. Um, I am not the angry chicken and there's no way i can convince people of that now so, oh, so people think it. you
0: are angry chicken
1: they think i'm both angry and, and chicken a chicken or a chicken lover and i have to say i do like chickens quite a bit um but um i'm not i wouldn't i'm not really angry but you know i, I just you don't, don't sound angry so. no no So when I think of the angry chicken, the angry chicken is actually not me, but it's this small, really angry chicken on one of my quilts, and I like that chicken. It's it's a very upset chicken, and so it's funny, because, like, I know people just assume I'm the angry chicken, but I'm not. But they (laughs) can think I am. That's okay. (laughs) That's,
0: That's so funny, because I think people extrapolate their own, like, that a reason why someone would call their blog a certain thing? <laughs> so, yeah. So well, that's part of the fun of it. So hopefully we've cleared some things up here. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if I would call it angry ticket again, but you know, that's cool.
0: Well, just go with it. You know. I'm gonna go with it. Yeah. I'm
1: gonna go with it because what would I call it? I don't know.
0: Well, and now I wanted to get into something that I find just completely fascinating: the Taiwan on phenomenon. Um. That's your website where you have people. You invite people every month to make an apron, um, and and kind of sh- you know sh- kind of a show and tell situation. Um, now, I think this is really interesting because there was a time not long ago when um, women, well, women crafting it kind of skipped a generation for for a lot of people. Um, where everyone's crafting like crazy now and making art, and it's fabulous. And I love the fact that we live in a day like today where. This is going on, but it's interesting to me that um I know for me I, I if someone tells me, go to the kitchen and put on your apron and make some dinner i would not nothing would happen i wouldn't even respond to that kind of demand, <laughs> but I love aprons and i I think it's fabulous, and i I want to start making some aprons like you have on you know displayed on the website, and it's really intriguing to me that all these really progressive and crafty women are kind of seizing seizing this symbol of like Domest, uh, you know, the domestic woman, um, you know, kind of like this uh, June Cleaver staple. And we, you know, the women have really taken it and said, "You know what? I own this. Look at how cool my apron is." And it's it means something else now. And can you talk a little bit about that and kind of why you came up with this idea and why you like aprons so much?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, aprons. I kind of remember when I didn't have them, and I think um, it started in Eugene. Um, I started collecting. And I did a lot of dress-up in Eugene, and I'm sure a lot of um, people who are into vintage clothes can totally, like, relate with me on this one, but I went through a phase where it was pretty much all I wore for a couple years was um, just vintage and um, a little bit thinner then than I am now, Um, but um, it... It was really a, a way of dressing up. I mean, it was like a way to dress up, and I loved it. I just loved the costume sort of, I guess, in a way, kind of performance art sort of thing going on there. And um, so along with all the clothes and the shoes and everything, I was collecting aprons. And I was pretty much, um, I would take whatever I could get, but you know, obviously ones from the 40s and before were pretty desirable, because they were harder to find. And especially the full aprons versus the happy half aprons. And um, I think, you know, the one thing about aprons is that, you know, you can, you can pretty much find an apron for a person regardless of whether or not they think they're into aprons because there's the half aprons and there's cute, like, 50s-style aprons. And then lately I've been really into, like, the more 70s kind of smocks. Like, I'd imagine, like...
0: I love smocks.
1: Yeah. Like, like even from, like, the ice storm. You know what I mean? Like, the 70s kind of almost, like, um, like tunic thing mm-hmm. happening. Like, I mean, you, it really can run because, you know, after the 70s, you know, early 70s, you didn't really see many aprons anymore. No, but you no. can still find patterns as late as the 70s. And um, and kind of, um, so fashion-wise, it's funny, because I'll get some people on Taiwan On who are, like, so about the full kind of 50s, almost kind of a dominatrix, kind of Betty Page, kind <laughs> of, like, naughty thing going on with aprons, which I love. And then I'll get, like, really, really cool indie sort of, Avant garde, fashionista, you know, kind of people who are just into kind of deconstructed clothing and they're making a really simple smock or, you know, something. And it's all related. I mean, it's, it's still an apron. So I think that that is absolutely fascinating. And then there's the whole component of how aprons are the absolute perfect beginning sewing project because um, you just literally tie it on. So for someone who wants to get into garment sewing, it's perfect because don't have to worry about it fitting exactly right, but you have all the same components. You can have sleeves and trims and pockets and gathers and ruffles and pleats, but you don't have that horrible let down that you can get when you're sewing a garment where you spend all this time and you put it on and it doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, it lends itself to, I think, expressing um, creativity and clothing in a way that feels so much less scary. And it is less scary. and um, so I, I guess I just have always felt really, really wonderful about aprons, and I, and I wear them a lot, and, and I think that there's that historical thing, there's that collector vintage thing, there's that dress-up thing. I really like dressing up around the house, and now with the girls, it's just ridiculous. That they, I mean, they're such they're such good fans. They're like my biggest fans. They're just, they just make me feel so good, and I'll put on the apron, they notice everything. You know, they're like, Mom is wearing an apron, we want an apron, and then I'll get out little aprons for them, and it's like, oh, God, it's so great, because before you know, Pete would be like, oh, nice apron, you know, but you don't get a lot of comments
0: you right? Know, right. on the
1: apron, and so that's, that's been really fun, too, and then there's the whole Japanese apron thing, where a lot of girls in Japan will actually wear them out. On the oh, so apron. they wear them on the street, like just yeah. wearing them. Yeah, and so it kind of just took off, and, and I, I think what happened is I started posting my vintage apron collection, and then other people started posting them, and at that time I was still a pretty new blogger, and I was trying to figure out what made me so crazy happy about blogs, and and this whole internet thing. And I think part of what was, to me, so moving about it were things um, that were bigger than the blogs. So it was like 52 projects and um, Self Portrait Tuesday and, and these sort of ideas of communities coming together. It, again, it was, about an art, it was about creating this virtual art environment that kind of had like a group show sort of feeling, but there was no physical space for it. And that got me so excited. I was just like, what can I do to create a venue for people to show something creatively and come together as a group um, and and just create like this, this place, this kind of place that doesn't really exist, but it does exist. And the Apron thing just kind of came to me, and, and it was really enthusiastically received, and that was wonderful. But I have to say that it was more about participating in that kind of artistic um, online forum that was the motivator than Aprons themselves. But Aprons were the perfect thing. Um, but if it hadn't have been aprons would I would have looked for something else um because I just really felt like I wanted to be part of that idea of of people making things um and having a place to show them i just I still think that', that is just so cool
0: and you've been making, you've been running the um Taiwan on site for how long now um, I think we just came up on a year okay well, congratulations thanks that's great and And how did you start it? I mean, did you just send an email out to or tell your friends or how did you
1: yeah yeah i think I, I i got the idea and i asked a couple other blogging friends and said hey is this you know completely cracked or would you do this and they were like oh yeah go for it and so i just put an email out and i said hey i'm gonna i'm gonna start this i'm gonna start a new blog start a new website and um and you know this is the first thing and then i just crossed my fingers and you know claire had already started um month of softies and that had been around for almost a year i think or even more um and so there was a big precedent there. I mean, because that was that was kind of the first i first time I had stumbled upon kind of a group thing, and um, and then the um, self portrait Tuesday I think it had already started at that point, um, or or it was around the same time. And then the fifty two projects again, you know, it was it had already been there. So uh, you know, people knew what I was talking about. Right. They they
0: understand. Yeah. It's participation and yeah.
1: But what's interesting is I get so many people who don't have blogs contributing, or people who've never you know, don't, don't know that forum, you know, I, I, I it crosses over a lot, there's a lot of, um, it reaches out to a lot of people who, you know, I didn't, I didn't come into contact with.
0: Well, I think it's really inspiring, too, to just go on there and look and see, because um, I'm one who never really follows a pattern exactly, anyway, right. um, and for, I went looking for smock patterns um, after I saw that that's what you were posting, that, yeah, I thought, wow, those are so great, and then when I've been out in the fabric store, I'm like, yeah, so, what kind of smack and people are like smack like why they look at me like why in the hell would you want to make a smack you know (laughs) like And and I'm thinking like this is something that I would actually, I would wear wear it out, not just like around the house. I mean, um, of course I wear stuff out that probably most people would rather not. Like I took my husband's jeans and made them into a skirt, this long skirt. That's like crazy. It's insane. The skirt looks just crazy, but I wear it and I've worn it to work. I mean, which is, you know, I kind of would do that on Friday and, or on the weekend, (laughs) if I work a weekend shift and, you know, you show up at something and, I cover crime and violence on occasion and it's like you show up to a scene you're talking to a police officer in this crazy skirt. But it really puts people at ease, you know, because if I come in a business suit... (laughs) It's really crazy because, like, the TV people show up in, like, business suits, tons of makeup and perfect hair. You know, when I show up, hey, uh, you know... Jennifer, you know, can you talk? Yeah. And, and, and people talk. I mean, they because I don't come with any kind of air of I am better than you. People might think. Maybe yeah, we're, I'm not better they, they than might you. look at my skirt. Yeah, look at my skirt. <laughs> I barely make anything. No. Um, so for Taiwan, on um, if people want to get involved with that, basically, you know, look at what the theme is for the month, and then submit the photo to you. Is that yeah?
1: Yeah. yeah just email me the JPEG and then a link to your blog if you have one, but you don't need one. And um, the reason why I don't have it up on Flickr as a public thing where anyone can just add photos is I really like, even though it's a lot more work for me, I really like unveiling the gallery at the end of the month. And if you have it as a public group on Flickr, people just add it, you know, kind of willy-nilly throughout the month. And that's fine, but I really, I kind of, I really like the, sort of thing. Oh, look, here it is. Right,
0: right. Well, I think it also um, protects you, too, in case somebody does something ridiculous. Well, it is
1: less. It's less maintenance. I have uh, three other groups on Flickr. I have vintage um, apron patterns on Flickr, and then I have vintage aprons on Flickr, so for people who can photograph and want to show their apron collections. And then I have a mail-order group. And um, those are, and that's, you know, if you bake the blueberry bread or you make the bonnet or you make um, the project, you can show it. And actually, as an aside, one thing I have to say that's been a shock of mail order and it's been wonderful is how much modification people are doing to the projects send. I send. You know, I send them and you cut them out and you make them, and I had no idea people would, like, embellish them so much. And it's thrilling to see, like, what I send them and then what they photograph. It's like... They've added papers and rivets and ribbons and, you know, just all these things, and it's really cool. But there is a little bit more maintenance on those because, you know, you'll get the random person who's, like, advertising their whatever, and they post the photo, you know. And so you have to go and clean, it, clean up the gallery. And so it is nice that on is just me because I – but it also means that any mistake is my fault. So that's, you know, yeah, it's that's like any uploading problems are, like, me, right. me being mental, so, you know.
0: Well, it's in my case, it's just me not knowing what the hell I'm doing with technology. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I can talk, and I can write, and I can craft, but the um, RSS feeds, and um, I still have not figured out permalink really well at all, um, so... I need to, you know, kind of educate myself. But it just bores me to tears. Yeah, well, I can't so
1: place I... a button, like the little tie on. People write me all the time and say, I want to grab that tie on button and use it to advertise it on my site. And that's wonderful. I have no clue. I, you know, that's the point at which I yell for Pete and I leave the room because I just, I tried it like twice and I couldn't do it. I just, I just don't want to revisit it. I just, I'm, <laughs> there's just certain things like, um, yeah, I also don't mow the lawn. I just don't want to.
0: So who are you influenced by? Whose work do you love?
1: No, I think what I would say is, is rather than focus on individual artists, I, I get most of my inspiration now not from, from art, but from other things. Like, I, I'm really into vintage periodicals right now. And um, I do have a, have a reprint, you know, of a Sears catalog from, like, I don't know, 1901 or something. And I, I, that's on my desk. I mean, that's like, it's like, um, I use that almost daily. And you know it's the size of a dictionary, but I'm always looking up stuff in that Sears Robot catalog, and it's fonts and layouts and graphics, and and then also, I you know corsets and uh, you know horse carriage accessories and guns and um, compacts, and I mean it's just, it's just my reference for everything, and it's kind of strange, and I I've had it now for almost ten years, and I um. I kind of forget if I look at it for too long that I can't order that stuff. You know? <laughs> um, but I just I use it for everything, and um, so that's a huge influence. And uh, old magazines. I really like old ads. Um, I'm really influenced by gra- by old graphics. Even though I love you know fine art so much, I think I just have such an interest, a natural interest in graphics and graphic design. And um, and I really like. I, you know, I really like vintage how-to books. I'm actually looking right now at a title that I got um, someone online posted about it, and I found the book. It's called How to Make Aprons, and it's a book written by a woman who I think wrote for House Beautiful, or I'm not sure what did she write for. I'll pull it out right now. It's, um,
0: so is it a current book or is it an old book?
1: No, it was written in um, 1953 by Roxo Wright, R-O-X-A-W-R-I-G-H-T, and it has a forward, and then all these aprons, and then you can make them, and they supply the patterns on a grid. You have to dress them up. But there's, you know, a nursery apron, a cobbler dress. You know, that's a style of apron is a cobbler, um, a feeding apron, ruffled apron, smocks, all these things. But what's so brilliant about it is like the forward is written with this sort of stiff upper lip kind of wonderful <laughs> quality to it that's just. Um, I don't know. I'm finding right now that I am incredibly moved by women writing instructional manuals on domestic art. That, to me, is just, I just can't get enough of it. It's like, but they're always the intros. They're the intro to an old cookbook and that kind of narrative, that sort of, you know, um, this is how you take care of your family or this is how you feel good about yourself is you can make this thing and it has a, a, a useful purpose and, you know, um, it's just this sort of, um, okay, so this is a paragraph in the foreword here that I'm looking at. Historically, aprons have been much more than a utilitarian adjunct to dress. The gods of ancient Crete are depicted wearing them. So, too, the pharaohs of Egypt and their subjects, both men and women. Romans used aprons made of strips of leather as protection in battle today. The apron is an important symbol of Masonic rites. Okay, this is, this is a home deck book. <laughs> From 1953, is that what I said? Yeah. And this is the intro. And I cannot get enough of this. I and mean, this, to me, is like my biggest influence right now. And you can see it in mail order. She talks here about Marie Antoinette. Um, you know, <clears throat> whether you cook, sew, wash, babies, or dogs, garden on your knees, gather flowers in your skirt, or wear aprons only decoratively and just for fun, I hope you'll find here a type designed just for your particular need. And I'm, I'm getting chills. Just, I mean, no, I think that's historic, really cool. But it's like, that is so beautiful to me. I mean, it, this person, you know, really wants you to be able to make an apron. And so you, I know we've already covered aprons and you're talking about my influences, but really it's like I just, it's just, it's like these books are, are what moves me right now and it's what influences me. And I think getting into that about future projects and talking about it is that i I've I'm actually um, excited to be contributing to some books. <clears throat> and so I found myself in a position to feel a kinship to these authors, you know these these domestic kind of, um, and I have to say too, my grandmother, although she minored in journalism and became a, a really successful writer of the Oregonian, um, she had actually a column for a while. I think it was called Coffee Chat. I mean, it, you know, it was one of those things. Like, I mean, it was so cool. I just can't believe how cool she was. Um, this is my mom's mom. Um, she majored in home ec and. Even though she was very sort of Joan Crawford, she really could make a really good, you know, whatever. She used to make a lot of ice cream, <laughs> like the ice cream bombs that look like watermelons, but they were. But anyway, um, th- I think this combines everything to me that I love so much about my grandmother. It, it's this wonderful writing, it's this sharp tongue, and this sort of wry humor, but also. Um, this intelligence and wit, but it's combined with this domestic side that I just, I just can't get enough of it. And it's so thrilling to me with the blog, but also in these projects where I've been able to contribute to books, to be able to somehow make my mark in that same way or participate in this history, this idea of putting down in print, in some print, whether it's electronic or not, documenting, documenting these things that may be mundane, but they're actually quite fabulous, you know?
0: Well, I think that that's just wonderful. And thank you for sharing those excerpts. That's fabulous. Because I think a lot of times people you think oh a 1953 book it's probably a how to keep your husband happy while you are miserable kind of directive and that really was not any of that no no. and I've had some
1: embroidery books about like that too um, from the 50s and and embroidery and needlework and it's like they're right out of like new age creative self help books. I mean, some of these writings are just like incredible. I can't believe I find this stuff.
0: Well, I think it's completely undervalued too. And I think it's wonderful that you're helping turn people back to that material. And so we can kind of reclaim it for, you just, you know, and, and value it for what, it, what it's worth. And it's, that's really great.
1: Yeah. Well, well, it's interesting because I get the same feeling like Debbie Stiller, her writings at the beginning of. Um, Bitch and Stitch, you know, are reclaiming the knit. And, oh, you know, yeah. A, and, and I read that, and I'm like, oh, right on. That is so is so incredible. And then I find these other books, and I'm like, oh, it's there. Yeah, you know, it's that, there. that sediment is there. And it's I think just it just was important. just
0: ignored, I think, for a generation, you know, because, well, everyone's picking up Stitch and Bitch now and yeah. thinking, wow, this is rock on, you know, and not realizing that, as you've just pointed out, in the 1950s, these women weren't just standing at the kitchen washing dishes and pretending to be happy. I mean they were claiming something for themselves and
1: well it's certainly I mean I think some were the, repressed. Well I think there were a lot <laughs> repressed but I think
0: to, to throw off all the literature and just assume that you know oh, that's perfect. what was going on it, right, it's it's right. great to see that and hear that that's it was there and it's It fun. was
1: there and it was also respected. I mean I do think that even in the 50s there were people who understood it as a significant art form and a significant part of our culture as, as women. You know, in the fifties there were still like, you know, she's referencing, you know, the pharaohs. It's like, you know <laughs>
0: Right. She sees Which I <laughs> wouldn't it wouldn't occur to me to do that, so that's, that's really right. cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation, Amy. Thank you oh, so much. Thank
1: you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Amy
0: for the fantastic interview. I hope you all enjoyed hearing her story as much as I did. Please remember to visit CraftSanity.com for links to Amy's websites and for that free embroidery project I told you about. She designed it especially for you, so check it out. Also, it's not too late to sign up for the CraftSanity book giveaway. The object is to get a copy of Debbie Stoller's Fun and Fabulous Stitch and Bitch Crochet the Happy Hooker book into the hands of a crafter with limited funds and boundless craft enthusiasm. So enter yourself or nominate a friend. All you have to do is send an email to me, Jennifer, at CraftSanity.com, by Saturday, July 29th. The winner will be announced on next week's show. So good luck, everyone. Before I sign off, I want to leave you with a very important question to ponder. Amy, this is for you. If you were a superhero, what kind of superhero would you be? Make Amy's Day and visit CraftSanity.com where you can leave a comment under this week's show write-up. And please list your superhero name, your superpower, and maybe your weakness. Or maybe don't list your weakness because that's really no one's business. No superhero in their right mind would want anyone to know what their weakness is. So you can tell us your weakness if you feel comfortable. Or you can tell us any other relevant superhero facts like what would you wear? What would your costume look like? I'm thinking I'd want to be someone who could fly definitely and maybe like trap the bad guys in nets that I spun with yarn out of my fingertips. I don't know, a combination of like a flying spider woman. (laughs) I obviously have to continue to think that one through. But anyway, just for fun, leave a comment and please visit Amy in her various locales on the web and check out what she's doing. It's pretty cool. We have a special treat this week. We're going to let Amy's husband, Pete Matern, play us out with a lovely song called Cedars. So thank you, Pete, for sharing that with us. I'll meet you back here next week with an interview with Debbie Stoller. And everyone, just remember that when times get tough, just pick up your latest project and craft sanity, my friends. It'll get you through.
1: craftsanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast want to support the show follow the link to vote for craft sanity on podcast alley once a month you can also make a donation or buy goods at the craft sanity store have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback email jennifer at craftsanity.com thanks again for listening to craft sanity